Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 15th, 2022. We, I've been thinking a lot about America these days, particularly in the context of Independence Day and the claims of America as a place where everyone is free to realize themselves. We did a show at the beginning of a week with two social scientists, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Karen Cerullo and Janet, Janet Ruan uh, have an interesting new book, Dreams of a Lifetime, How Who We Are Shapes How We Imagine Our Future. Uh, Cerullo and Ruan found that even when it comes to dreaming, our race, our gender, our age, perhaps in America above all else, our, 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 our ethnicity reflects how we dream. Um, so the promise of equality, while it's a noble one and an attractive one, certainly hasn't been realized in America. Uh, we're continuing that social scientific discussion about America uh, today with my guest, Maureen Perry Jenkins. She's a psychologist at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She's co currently talking to us from Los Angeles. She's the author of a new book, Work Matters, How Parents' Jobs Shape Children's Well-Being. Uh, we take it for granted, of course, or many of us would like to take for granted that children's well-being don't reflect their socioeconomic environment, their circumstance. But I think most of us would have to acknowledge that isn't true. And Maureen Perry uh, Jenkins has unveiled that in her new work, Work Matters. She's joining us from Los Angeles. Maureen, congratulations on this new book. W what are the, the principal lessons you found? I know you've spoken to, what, about 1,500 families for your work, Work Matters. I've done about 1,500 interviews. We had about 370 families over the course of about 15 years. Um, and I think the takeaway, I think your point is exactly right. We, it makes sense, the parents work and how parents interact with their kids affect their kids. But the idea that low-income families face a host of different challenges around work than higher-income families in terms of leave and in terms of what they actually do with their jobs, that, that has a long reach into the family and a long reach into children's development. So I think what's a little bit different about this book is as a psychologist, I was really interested in children's developmental outcomes. So we track children's mental health, emotional outcomes, social development over the course of a number of years, entering them from birth before they're even born into the first grade and looking at how parents early work and especially low income workers um, shape their lives. We've done some work ourselves on that. We did, uh, I, I, you're probably familiar with A.L. Press's uh, book, oh, yeah. Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. He was on the show last year. I was very impressed with the book and himself and his message. I assume that your book continues with that message that Press presents of an America that's profoundly unequal and plays itself out in the family. So in a way, but what I, the, the frame I take on this, so I was raised as a working class kid, right? And didn't um, feel, I didn't have this notion of poor us or what a horrible life I have or what's going on. So I was very, very interested in understanding why within a group of families that we might consider 
jobs we wouldn't want to have or poor jobs. Um, why some families thrive and some don't. So this was not an analysis of low-income families compared to another group, but it was looking within a group of low-income families and trying to understand why are some kids actually thriving and doing really well, and why are some kids not. And so the whole emphasis of this was trying to understand what about those early experiences for a whole bunch of kids in low-income families sort of sets their trajectories in different ways. And one of the things we looked at the things, a lot of work family work workers look at leave time and sick time and that sort of thing. But I think what's the most important message from this book is that we actually looked at how what happens in the job, in low wage jobs, shapes parents' mental health, shapes their parenting and ultimately shapes their kids. And the message is there are some low wage jobs that actually people are thriving in and enjoying and feeling some autonomy. And that's what's spilling over to their kids. So it was a, a goal was sort of not thinking about low wage jobs as a monolith, as all horrible, as people being miserable. And in fact, one of the fathers I talked to very early on was like, you know, don't you tell a sad story about my life. My life's fine. And don't go talking about how I'd like a life like yours because I don't. And that for me was sort of at the crux of this book to sort of not think about it as this monolith. So I, I, I want to get into the details. I think it's a really important message. But did you find, because not everyone will take this for granted, did you find that um, children's well-being is determined by whether or not their parents are happy in their jobs? And did this, did this break down differently with one-parent families versus two-parent families? Very good question. Um, so... Yes, we did find, and what's really important about this is we were looking at conditions in the very first year of a child's life, with the idea being that that's the very sensitive period in development and sort of issues that were happening early may have long-term implications. So we measured all sorts of things about parents' work, but the, the things that actually had the most profound effects on parents' mental health and parenting, which then affected their kids, was the amount of autonomy they had at their job. So having having some sort of say and, and some sort of self-direction in what you were doing. And this was in all kinds of jobs. So it wasn't, you know, that's what I'd really like to talk about, that, that, that low-wage jobs can be good jobs. They're low-wage, but there's aspects of them that are really protective. Um, and one of those aspects was this autonomy. And another was sort of the relationships on the job, relationships with coworkers, especially for men, and relationships with supervisors. And those three things, autonomy and relationships with supervisors and coworkers, were some of the biggest predictors of kids' behavioral problems at age six and um, social skills at age six. So is the assumption that unhappy parents come home, come home from work if they're mistreated or frustrated or bullied or whatever, abused, exploited, they come home from work and they, and they take out their anger on their children? Yes. I mean, the idea is that it's a process. And I want to say this, everybody has, I'm a working parent, most of the people who are reading this book are working parents, everybody has days where it works lousy, you come home, and either you disengage, put on the TV, give them something to do so you don't have to engage, or you're frustrated and angry. That happens to everybody. The issue is it happens day after day after day after day. If it's a continual pattern, um, and parents are so depleted and so exhausted from what's going on at work that they can't rally when they get home, that's when we see these problems. I guess the point I want to make is thinking about what about parents actually did on their jobs that made them 
energized. <laughs> it came home feeling good about what had happened at work. And the idea that that can happen in all kinds of jobs, not simply the jobs you might think everybody aspires to, which are higher SES kinds of jobs. I assume also, I mean, this wasn't the focus of your book, that there are many people, or some people at least, who have well-paying jobs who are also miserable and come home and take it out on their trip. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't think these processes are necessarily unique to low-wage families, but the, the narrative out there is really nobody wants these jobs. They're terrible jobs. And this is an argument. And, and for the folks doing those jobs, they hear those narratives. And it feels, it's, despite the fact that it's an effort often to sort of uplift and fight social injustice, people are living these jobs day to day and, and they're not going to go away anytime soon. So thinking about what about those jobs actually makes a, a positive effect on parents and kids is where I think we need to go. And a lot of our policy initiatives focus on parents' time away from work, which is hugely important. You know, I think you know, leave time and sick time and personal time and all those things absolutely matter. But what happens day after day, week after week, month after month, in a job that's taking 40 hours of your time every week is hugely important. And we kind of sort of see it as immutable, as something that we can't change. Um, but the data is coming out right now that interventions in low-income jobs and working with supervisors can make a huge difference for workers. Maureen, um, I.L. Press's book, Dirty Work, suggests a lot of the essential jobs in America are hidden. I'm talking yeah. to you from a hotel now in New York City. Yeah. Um, hotel jobs aren't really hidden. Menial work in hotels um so that's one area which perhaps is less hidden what what did you find in terms of this study about menial work itself how does it break down in america do you mean what actually happens in those jobs no the the type of work uh well so what was interesting or perhaps different about this study is a lot of um sociological studies pick certain occupations and look within occupations, which is a, one approach. I was really, really interested in sort of this transition to parenthood and how families were coping at its very, very important time in kids' development. And so the jobs were very varied in the families that I worked with. So we had everything from factory workers to candle packing factory workers to hairstylists um, to truck drivers. So the range of jobs was huge. And I do think that makes a difference because some of these jobs were incredibly isolating. Truck drivers are alone a lot. Um, other jobs, what was what I was most compelled with in this work was the kinds of creative things people um, made of their jobs when they were allowed to. The things that actually gave their jobs meaning that supervisors supported and let them do that wasn't official and wasn't on the books, but actually that made a huge difference for them. So the dignity of work is important. I, I'm surprised that you include truck drivers and even hairstylists because certainly truck drivers i assume were reasonably paid particularly during the pandemic or am i wrong that's a really good question so we you know we had depending upon the kind of truck drivers these weren't long distance truck drivers so if you're you know a ups delivery person or that kind of thing that's one kind of but some of the so the, it, it's an interesting question about social class because you can so some of our truck drivers made up to fifty thousand dollars if they worked over long shifts, if they took the longer drives. Um, I really focused on thinking about class as an indicator of both education. So everyone was high school educated um, at, at the highest level, 
Um, but, but many of our workers work two or three jobs. This idea about hidden work, I think, is really important. So when we initially did our interviews, we'd say, you know, what are your jobs? What are your schedules? How much do you make? What's your weekly pay? What's your monthly pay? And they would tell, you know, we asked both moms and dads and families where they're both there, what, you know, what income the family had and what the work was. And we started finding out dads would tell us about one job and the mothers would be in the other room telling us that dad actually had two other jobs on the side. And when we went back, because we saw these families multiple times and very politely, but Ashley said to dad, what? it sounds like there's more going on and, and can, you know, they were nervous about telling us about under the table jobs and, and ways they were making money other ways, but many had two or three jobs. So their income was actually very bumped up. Um, but often we don't know about it and we don't know about the 15 hours extra a week they're doing in these other jobs um, to keep their family going. So that for us was really eye-opening. And, you know, I had just come back from a conference saying low wage workers tend to work fewer hours than high wage workers. But I think part of our problem is we don't know what's happening under the table that they're not even telling us about. Yeah, it's a it's a tough world out there, especially mm-hmm. for um, for poorly paid uh, workers. Maureen, what did you find yeah. in terms of any correlation between the unhappiness of the parent at work and their determination to enable their children to escape this life, to educate themselves, to go to college, to acquire a profession? This is a really good question. And I was just, you know, I listened to the the, um, podcast on dreams and these parents had amazing dreams for their children and, and really wanted to change the path for them. At the same time, you know, I think there's, we've all had this, you have these big dreams, but in the day-to-day reality of life, it's just really hard to come home, get dinner going, turn off the TV, engage with a child consistently um, in ways that they need to be engaged in. So I think the dreams were there, but the reality of the pressures often were not, uh, you know, or we're not making it possible for, for folks to sort of live out those dreams. But, you know, I do also want to highlight sort of the experiences where parents were able to do that. And um, can I tell you just a story that I think exemplifies this? Please, Maureen. Yeah. So one of our um, one of the moms in our in our study who reported the highest levels of autonomy, we had this questionnaire that said, you know, you get to you know say in your job, you feel respected, you feel like you have um, input in the final product. It, it was that kind of questionnaire. So I just curiously said, who was the highest one in our sample that had that? And let's go look at what the interviews. And it happened to be I had interviewed her, and she worked at a candle packing factory. And I was like, how can someone working in a candle packing factory report highest levels of autonomy in a job? So when I went back and looked at the interview I had had with her, um, she, she was amazing. So she packed candles and sent them out and like worked in a huge warehouse. And what she had started to do was put little notes to her clients saying, you know, I noticed you like these vanilla smells. Here's some other things you can you might be interested in. And she would write little notes and put in little samples. And so her supervisor started getting requests that she fulfill certain packaging requirements for certain companies. And he was completely, he's like, what is this about? So he went to her, he goes, why are these people requesting that you do their packaging? And she went, well, and she was nervous about telling him, well, I, you know, I, I put in these extra samples and I write notes. Now that could have gone two ways. He could have been like, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. But instead he was like, wow, that's brilliant. You've actually created a connection with clients you don't even know. Maybe you can share that with other workers here and maybe we can come up with ways of writing notes to clients and and putting in extra samples he basically just took what she had done and sort of raised it up 
she ended up doing these little trainings with other workers. They ended up trying to name faceless clients as they called it. And it, she loved her job. Her supervisor sort of basically gave her the autonomy and acknowledgement of what she did. And then when the time came when she had her child, did she have the policies in place to take paid leave? No, but did he give it to her under the table? Yes, which is a problem. But the fact that problem because it had to be under the table, but the idea that those sorts of things can lift up a job to me is just a great story. It's interesting that uh, autonomy is an important piece in your narrative. The idea mm -hmm. that workers are happier if they have autonomy at work. How does that translate into the parenting sphere? Because of course, there's an ongoing debate. We've had so many shows about whether parents, for example, should give their children autonomy and what media they look at. What yes. was your sense of how autonomy at work translated into their notion of being a good parent? And, in be, and indeed, how did that work out in terms of the happiness or unhappiness of their children? Right. So, you know, remember when we first started these, the kids were infants. So really hard to know, except for that parents were coming home feeling better about themselves, you know, feeling like I had a good day at work, which translates into more engaged parenting. We know that. And the messages that they start giving their kids as they get older, um, again, we have qualitative data, uh, basic, and, and sort of the way that it actually happens is the interesting thing for a psychologist. How does it actually get transmitted to a kid um, that if you take, if you show some initiative, things will get, you'll have some more say in your life and you'll be able to sort of direct yourselves. It did happen directly just in terms of conversation. So for example, that the, the mom that I just told you about, you know, with her with her little six-year-old was sort of saying, you can go in and get the other kids. And they were talking about um, uh, recess time and recess time being during, during COVID had been limited. And so she literally talked to the six-year-old about how you can go in and talk to your teacher and make some changes. That's just one little example. But I think the message that she had totally gotten from work was, if I take some initiative, it's going to be rewarded and people are going to care about what I do. The question of how that gets translated to kids, I think is a hugely important one. And I don't have enough data, I think, to sort of say, this is exactly how it occurs. But we do know that empowered parents and parents who feel some autonomy um, are more engaged because they have more energy and are more sort of supportive of the kids. The question of whether or not then that means autonomy is about giving kids you know, say in what they watch on TV, that's a whole different issue, um, which I have opinions about, but that is not what we linked it to in this study. Did you, in the study, did you talk to the kids? Did you learn uh, about their needs yes. and desires and hopes for good parenting? We did. Well, remember, these kids were the, the ages when we talked to them, um, where they could actually talk to us, they were still very young, six and seven years old. Um, and just uh, adorable and out of the mouth of babes, you know, kind of what we wanted to know is what they actually knew about their parents' work and how they felt about their parents' work. Um, and I had done another study pr prior to this one where we actually talked to older kids, eight to 10 year old kids. And what was really interesting was that um, kids talked about work making their parents disgruntled or angry or happy. They didn't talk about the work in particular, but they talked about the effect on their parents. Um, and they also talked, I think there's also this narrative that really it's the number of hours of work and how, how far long parents are away from their kids. And the data on hours is pretty clear. Just work hours alone are unrelated to kid outcomes. It's just too simple a variable. Just work hours doesn't matter. And in fact, some of the older kids talked about 
um, kind of liking it when moms and dads were a little bit distracted or not always on them and they, they had time to just be by themselves and not sort of um, the center of, of parenting attention all the time, which was an interesting kind of finding that um, sometimes work and parents being engaged in something else gives kids some room to breathe and, and not necessarily be under the microscope with parents. So, but in, in the study with the six-year-olds, it was much, much more not about, many of them didn't even understand or know what their parents did, or they could tell us very briefly. It was more whether or not that work made their parents grumpy or made, they didn't like it when their parents came home because they weren't happy, or they would sit and watch TV and not talk to them or those sorts of um, experiences they would share with us. Maureen, you, you mentioned the, the dream uh, book, uh, uh, Dreams of a Lifetime by uh, Karen Cerullo and, and Janet Ruin. I did an interview with them earlier this week. They noted that there were differences when it came to dreaming between particularly um, Hispanic people and whites, but they also noted there wasn't a great deal of difference between whites and blacks in America. Did did you break this down in terms of culture? I mean, one yeah. of my, maybe this is um, a reflection of myself, but one of my assumptions is that particularly in the Hispanic community, you have more extended families, which means that even if parents have tough jobs and are out the house all the time, it might be more likely that the grandparents, for example, would look after the kids. What did you find on that front? Yeah. This was really, really interesting. So we did have fairly equal numbers of African-American, Latina, um, and white mothers and fathers when fathers were around. And um, the processes linking work to family were actually the same. What was different? We, we a lot of this study focused on parents' mental health and especially postpartum depression and mother's mental health. And we found for the whole sample, you know, depression is pretty high right around when a baby's born. Most mothers recover. Um, and they and the, the data out there and most of the intro psych books for it would say, and then mothers recover and things are fine. But in our sample, when mothers went back to work, um, you saw mental depression go up again. So it was like this curvilinear relationship. So they were depressed, they got better, and then went back to work and depression started, on average, started going up again. What was really interesting is those findings differed dramatically by race and ethnicity. And in fact, the group that did the best in terms of had hot, you know, fairly high depression right around when the baby's born, recovered and stayed pretty recovered was our African-American moms. The white moms were sort of in the middle and the moms who actually did the worst were our Latina moms. So we went back to talk to them to sort of say what, and what was interesting when you're doing longitudinal studies, you can come back and say, what do you think is going on here? These are some of the findings that we're getting. What's your thoughts on this? What's your feedback? And for the African-American moms, and I remember doing some of these interviews, um, when we asked them about how do you feel about going back to work after the baby's born, there was um, a, a huge sense of sort of frustration with that question. It was like, African-American women have always worked. We have never not worked. So asking that, you know, I'm a provider. This is what I do for my child. It's hugely important. And, and actually, in many cases, sort of annoyed with the question. The Latina mothers, um, and primarily in our sample is Puerto Rican mothers, is that, um, from around the Holyoke area in Massachusetts, which is 70% Puerto Rican. They were fairly distraught about going back to work. And the pressure from their mothers for, um, in terms of going back to work and being judged for going back to work and feeling like they weren't ever going to be good mothers because they were going back to work actually made it much more difficult. And then our white moms were sort of in the middle around, in, in terms of those changes. 
So culture clearly did and sort of the norms and beliefs around employment and working mothers um, clearly had a, an impact on, on mom's mental health. Dads were, there were no differences for dads, very interestingly. No differences at all between um, uh, Latina, um, uh, whites and blacks? Fathers, no. And but I do want to say in our, in our study and, and what came out loud and clear in our findings in terms of kid outcomes is dad's work mattered as much as mother's work in predicting kids' outcomes. And that's hugely important story because it's just oftentimes studies don't even include fathers. And, and the fact that our fathers work and how they felt about their jobs, not just their hours, but actually what they experienced in their jobs was related to kids' social skills and related to kids' mental health outcomes, um, I think is a really important message to get out there. Maureen, how aware were or are these parents on the relationship between their work and their, their children's well-being? That's such a good question. Um, they talked about it to some degree in terms of, well, there was, for, for some, a, a significant subsample, great concern about how going back to work was going to harm their children. Um, and that, for me, kind of broke my heart because the assumption was just going back to work. The number of hours you were going back to work was going to be harmful for your kids. And, and this, the study we were doing was not an intervention. So I wasn't there and I wasn't wasn't my role at that point to say, oh no, you know, work, the data would say the work hours aren't the thing. We're now actually doing an intervention study because I was so moved by this experience. But in this study, we just asked them about it and they were very worried about work hours and they were very worried about childcare and the quality of childcare that they were gonna, that their children were gonna get given how much it costs and how few resources they had. Um, but I don't think they actually thought on a day-to-day -day basis how their interactions were being shaped by coming home in a bad mood from work or coming home exhausted from work. That piece of it, the sort of day-to-dayness of it was not something they talked about. And there's, of course, a, a tragic catch-22 here in the sense that they're working for their kids, aren't they? Many of them are taking two or three jobs, the jobs under the table that they wouldn't even talk to you about in order not just to, to feed and clothe their children, but to give them more opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what's what really what we really need to know is sort of following them further. Right. So do, do the school age kids and the teenagers, are they able to recognize that sacrifice? Are they able to say, oh, I get why my parents did that or what they did for me? And what does that message look like? And there's some folks doing work with the sort of older kids. We don't have those data right now. Um, and I would love to know kind of what the long, longer term arm of the job, you know, how it affects them over a long period of time is really happening. Um, so as a, I, you know, I, the other thing, I guess, in terms of thinking about kids developmental outcomes, the other, a lot of this is focused, we have data also in their cognitive outcomes, sort of just how they do at school and teachers reports of how they're doing. And I think what's very important about our data is we start actually during pregnancy. So we're looking at stress even during pregnancy and our current study that we're doing is finding that stress during pregnancy that comes from work is related to elevated cortisol for mothers, which then is related to elevated cortisol for infants when they're born, which can be related to also. So it starts very, very early. And most of our work with families start, like if you think about you know childcare for all and sort of that push it, it starts with, with kids that are maybe one or two years old, not with newborns. And I think we're missing the mark by not starting much sooner 
and supporting our parents in terms of the stress they're experiencing because we already, we already put folks behind the eight ball when their infants are born if they're already been exposed to high levels of stress. And I'm moving us on to a totally different topic. So sorry about that. Well, it's, it's, it's very important and interesting. The stress is interesting. You're a psychologist. I know my kids get very, very angry if they feel that I'm making them feel guilty in some way or other. They don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want to be uh, subjected to guilt. Do you think as a psychologist, maybe not as part of this, this particular project work matters, do you think it's good, particularly for children of low income parents to understand the sacrifices that their parents have made for them? Is it psychologically healthy? I don't think for young, I, I don't think. It well, no, not for young. I mean, we're not talking about six-year-olds, but let's say teenagers. Um, I think children understanding why parents are doing what they're doing and understanding what they actually do at their work and why they do their work. Yes, I think it's hugely important. And it's conversations that parents don't really have with their kids very often, what, what their jobs are. There was this wonderful study done looking at what kids know about their parents' work. And they basically had kids role play like, okay, so your mom and your dad and whatever, and now I want you to do what they do when they go to work. And the kids would go and stand like somewhere else and just stand there and wait till they could come home and do the things they knew happened, which was making you know food or cleaning or whatever, but they don't know what parents are doing in those other contexts. And that's important, like to just know what parents are doing and why they're doing it. I don't think a six-year-old needs to, know that or even should understand that but do i think teenagers absolutely really interesting and important stuff work matters how parents jobs shape children's well-being by maureen perry jenkins maureen let's end on policy yeah uh, unfortunately today joe manchin the swing vote in the senate has pulled the plug on both climate and tax talk shrinking biden's domestic plan it was already pretty shrunk now now it barely exists what were the policy implications uh, of, of your study work, Matt? I mean, Biden, Biden isn't going to be able to get anything done. But what might an administration or a state government do in terms of what you learn? What is the best way to help parents bring up happier uh, children, children who will contribute more to society? So, you know, I'm actually going to suggest that this is not, I'm not going to talk about federal and state level policy, even though I've been involved with that. And I do think those efforts need to be happening. I think for immediacy purposes, this is about employers and employers. Uh, some of these changes that can happen are actually not very costly. You end up retaining workers, you end up having happier workers. I mean, there's a win-win in this that employers are, I've, I've spent more time more recently talking to employers than I have with policy folks, because I truly believe like empowering supervisors to actually want to do the right thing for their workers who sometimes feel caught in the middle that's something employers need to address thinking about how some of their policies are are kind of just been on the books forever and that's just the way things are there's a point system that almost all low-wage workers that i talked to had you know you get bad marks for you know coming in late or being sick and after you get a certain number of them you're put on probation and i've said to every employer and what are the what are the reinforcing programs you have? What about when you come in early? Do you get checks for that? What about when you get, you know, you create some new policy? Do you get checks for that? And employers are kind of like, oh, no, we don't do that. That's an interest. So there's, I think, and I'm very pragmatic and feel like some of these things need to happen tomorrow. And I know those big policies aren't. 
I think employers and workplaces are the place that some of this needs to happen like tomorrow. And what about the precariat, the part-time workforce, the drivers for Uber, the people who work at the Amazon factories? Did you find that full-time real work and minimum income and all those things yeah. that many progressives take for granted, that those were all true in terms of your particular study? Oh, that's so important. Yeah. So I would say, in fact, in our study, full-time uh, stable work predicted was the strongest predictor of men's mental health and a significant predictor of men's mental health, literally knowing you had your job and you had it every, you know, every day and it wasn't going to go away. So we had a lot of workers who were seasonal workers. So, you know, you might have 60 hours during the holidays if you're working at a hotel and you get 20 hours in February. Jobs like that are deadly because you can't plan. You don't know what money's coming in. You don't know when you're going to get, you know, your next full-time week. So the, the, the privilege is of having a full-time stable job it is the, one of the most protective factors for these families. And it's sadly um, far more precarious than I had ever imagined when we got in there, that people don't, aren't, don't have the privilege of full-time work, stable work. And minimum, minimum wage uh, debate, Maureen, do you have strong opinions on that or it didn't really play out? Yeah, I mean... I, my assumption, and, and I feel like there's a lot of people doing work on these policies on minimum wage, on leave, and those sorts of things, and I care about them, I support them, and I do my research on that, but I wanted to bring in a different story about this. These, you know, We're not going to change all this right away, and what do we do tomorrow? What do we do to start helping our families and so when they go to work, they're actually not feeling downtrodden when they get home? And I think that that is where I focus my attention because it, there is a lot going on the policy side. There's less going on like what we're doing with employers and actual work sites. Really important stuff. Uh, might not be the sexiest stuff out there, but it's really important. <laughs> work matters, how parents' jobs shape children's well-being. Congratulations, Maureen. Uh, Maureen Perry Jenkins on your, your new work. I hope uh, many people will read it. It's important not just for parents, but for policymakers. And for Americans generally to understand, we've done so many shows on helicopter parenting and rich people, rich parents' relations with their child and anxiety and all this stuff. I think in many ways, this is a much more important and a much less, uh, a much less discussed subject. So congratulations, Maureen, on Thank the new you. work. Um, and then what else are you reading these days? I hope it's not just all social science and psychology. Anything for fun, Maureen? Cheer you up. Oh, for fun? Oh, I actually was, no, I was going to give you the list of all the books that people should read about this, these sorts of topics. Okay, go on. <laughs> um, because I think what, again, I guess to make my point, sort of what's actually happening at work and what we're going to make, this is a great book. I don't know if you've called Unequal Time that looks at sort of it by Naomi Gerstel. Uh, and have you heard about that? No. Oh, it's a great book. And it really, it, in the healthcare industry, sort of looks at, doctors versus EMTs versus, yeah. you know, just thinking about what actually happens, how that comes home. I think those sorts of stories, that's what's been compelling. Like that, those data to the, the healthcare industry were hugely important. They had real life sort of examples and stories. And that's what I think is, and they're focused on just the healthcare industry, not changing policy everywhere. And that's kind of what I think. These, and the other thing is Phyllis Moen and, and Aaron Kelly have this great book on how you actually do interventions. Like what can happen at workplaces? What interventions actually work with supervisors? What interventions work with coworkers? And again, I think these are things that can happen sooner than waiting for Joe Manchin and what's going to happen at the White House. I just, it's just so frustrating that I think these things are we can do tomorrow.